Well, this morning we have a testimony born to us from the Word, a testimony from Matthew chapter 6. I'd love it if you would turn there with me. Matthew chapter 6, we're at the end of the chapter there, beginning in verse 25. If you brought a Bible, turn there with me. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have some paperback Bibles that are nearby to you. We'd love it if you would grab that, follow along with me. Matthew chapter 6. Verses 25 through 34, through the end of the chapter there. Please follow along with me. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, or nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for speaking and speaking truth and speaking these generous, comforting truths to us today. And Lord, we thank you for the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for preserving it for us to this day. And we thank you for whatever it is that we walk into this room with that makes us perfectly fit to receive this word. Whatever it is, hardship or blessing, This morning, we are fit to hear your word and to be called to seek first the kingdom. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit would work among us by means of your word and your church would be encouraged, lifted up, and brought to a deeper faith in your name. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Matt's right when he says that we would be um, inappropriate. It would not be good for us this morning if what we did was to come to listen for a nice little life tip, a a good word about how to live a a better life. I I like to follow uh, news websites and blogs like lifehacker.com, you know, that give you little tips and so on. But that is not the nature of the word. The word is not here to give us a, a nice little tip. Like here's one. I mean, if it was, I can think of of better things than Jesus can say than, hey, don't be anxious, right? Your life would be better if you wouldn't be anxious. And we're like, whew, that's a good one. I'm glad he really drew that one up for us. I guess I'll just not be anxious then. Pro tip for life, right? It's not the way it works. This is not a a verse that we can just pull out and make a parable or, or a proverb out of. It's a verse that is in context, okay? And he's telling us something far more profound than to do a deed, 
Okay, particularly a deed that all of us know, the more you strive to not be anxious, the more, what are you? Anxious, thank you very much. Yeah. There's a strong relationship to this passage, particularly between verse 24 and 25. We're not going to go back and re-preach the, following, the previous passage, but you'll remember that last week we saw that the love of money is to place yourself in a position under the authority and blessings that money would provide. You say, money, I'll serve you because you have authority over me, and I think that you'll give me something that would bless my life. You serve money because you believe money is king and worldliness is the kingdom. So when we get to verse 25, and those words that follow, they describe the other case, what it is to love God and to serve God rather than money. Jesus is drawing a contrast for us in our passage this morning. To love money is a life of anxiety. And to love God is to be provided for by a loving Father. See the contrast very quickly if you look at the words there. Do not be anxious about your life, he says. Now, the key verse in this passage, if we're not just told, don't love money, love God, don't serve money, serve God, so don't be anxious, we're we're left hanging. But that's not the end of the matter for us, but rather by the time we get done with our passage this morning, he's also said these words. I think it's the other half of the command. Do not be anxious, but in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, Anxiety will never leave a vacuum. You can't just remove anxiety and have this sort of perfect rest, right? The way that anxiety is removed is by means of the pursuit of rest in the kingdom of God, in the king and in his way as he's describing it for us here. How will we not be anxious? Well, we can serve money. It's one way to strive to not be anxious. We can serve the things of this world. We can place ourselves under their authority and their provision and so seek to provide for ourselves and remove anxiety ourselves. Or in the midst of our labor in this world, we can seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust the Lord by trusting the way of the king. You can See that to seek the things of the world is the way of anxiety. It's a labor. It's a toil in and of yourself. And I'll tell you, with every day that I live, the more I get to know myself, not just the depth of my depravity, but just my straight-up weakness and my failure, the more I realize if the trust is in myself, anxiety is around every corner. Is my savings sufficient? Have I served money enough so that it'll pay me back? Or has money abandoned me? Has the world gone sideways? Are my circumstances stable? Has moth or rust or thieves come to steal and to destroy? We're constantly left with those questions. Really, the key, I think, to this passage is an issue of materialism, is a naturalistic worldview. 
You might remember from the previous section of the passage that the evil eye or the eye that does not have light to see the world for what it really is. To see the world for what it really is, is to see that the world is not all that really is. To have light in your eye, to have the light of the glory of God in our eye is to see that this world is not all that is, but there is a Father in heaven, and there is a King who has come to the earth. I have to tell you, before we continue, that anxiety is a daily reality for me. Those who know me closest know that my mind races all day. I'm a thinker. And it's kind of nice because sometimes, occasionally, I have a decent thought that's the result of all that Thinking, But the problem with being a thinker is I can't not think. It goes on all day. I have a very difficult time sleeping at night because of the difficulty I have not spinning on thoughts, not worrying about concerns. I have a very physical response to anxiety. Even this year, I discovered some issues with my heart, thankfully benign, but they are directly related to levels of stress and the way I just get to spinning, and I can't make it stop. So the words of Jesus here are literally a daily comfort for me. It's daily packed into that phrase that I utter to the Father, give us this day our daily bread. I do not need to spin. I'm going to by nature, but I do not need to spin. I do not need to think because you our provider, a daily comfort. When we pray as anxiety builds, we call the whole of this passage to mind right in that little phrase, give us this day our daily bread. I know that many of you here also struggle with anxiety. I know the world in which we live with an increase of the reality of what uh, many in the culture are beginning to call deaths of despair. That anxiety is rising in our culture. We know that it is a struggle that we cannot win. The effort not to be anxious is a circular argument and a fool's errand. I mean, just try it on. If your deal is that you can't stop thinking, try to focus on thinking about not thinking. (laughs) You see where I'm stuck, right? I know where many of you are stuck. Well, Jesus offers six reasons we should not be anxious, and he invites us to think about these things. Let our hearts, let our minds be informed, corrected, and comforted by the way of the king. I'll tell you what Jesus does is he sort of puts a, puts a stick in the cog of my spinning on and on, and he offers a new thought that derails my way of thinking and gives me a new Comfort in the battle against anxiety and for trust in the Lord. Even this morning, my wife Sandy, she sent me this proverb, 1225. She said, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Let us turn to the better words of Jesus and let our hearts be made glad. We're going to pay attention to them. We're going to walk through them methodically, letting the Lord comfort us. He does so by offering us six, maybe seven 
perhaps even eight reasons. We're going to look at six this morning. Reasons to be comforted in a life filled with anxiety otherwise. Verse 25, he offers the first comfort. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. First comfort. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? Life. What is it? Well, he offers one possibility, right? That the body would be just eating, drinking, clothing. And he says, isn't, isn't, life, isn't life more than that? Isn't life more than a pursuit of just these base natural things? Well, what is life then? Just this week, my family was reading a story in which Jesus puts on display for us what life is. It's the story of Jesus. He was traveling along the road, and he was on his way through Samaria, and he ran into, shocker, a Samaritan woman. Now, the situation of his running into her is he was, he was traveling along, and it says that he became weary. Note that. Jesus, you know, God the Son incarnate became weary. He knows what it is to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be in need of clothing, in need of rest. And that day, he sat down by the well, and he sent his disciples on in. It would appear that he sent them in to go and get food. My guess is that he was not quite as strong as his disciples, and his disciples still had strength to go on into town. We know Jesus to be generous, not to go ordering people around. So he sits down in his weariness, and he begins a conversation. He has a conversation with the woman at the well, and he speaks of the things of God. He speaks of the Father. He speaks of the provision of God, of, of, of water and life, living water that never runs dry. And his joy is apparent, and her joy increases. And she goes off into the city to tell the people about this prophet, Jesus, who is by the well, telling her all about her life and the things of God. Meanwhile, the disciples, they return to him. It says in John chapter 4, Rabbi, they say to him, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has he brought something to eat with him? Did he have something in a backpack that he didn't tell us about? Did he have a Snickers that he's been holding out on us? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see, Jesus had a good eye. He had a right view of the world. Jesus saw that there is more to this world. There's even more to the moment of his weariness than food, drink, and clothing. His joy, his actual practical comfort Beside that well did not come from money or the provision of this world. It came directly from above. And unless Jesus is lying, he was actually satisfied. Elsewhere, Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And he says this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's fascinating. I actually know what this is like. I've personally experienced being wrapped up in prayer or encouragement in the scriptures or a good conversation about the things of God with a friend that I literally forgot to eat. 
It just went right through the breakfast hour, right through the lunch hour, just being comforted in the things of God. I also know what it is to enjoy a good lunch with a brother or sister in such a way that the food, it's just a context for something far sweeter, valuable, and pleasing to the Lord. The question here is, what if our first concern, what if our first effort, our first thought and care were to know God? What if we knew that, then we knew we would be satisfied? What if we sought the kingdom of God? What if we walked as though we thought and knew that life were more than food and drink and clothing? Jesus gives us another compelling argument for why we need not be anxious if we have received a kingdom. In verse 26, he speaks of the birds of the air. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet their father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, we all know that birds just sit around and wait for their food, right? All they do is chirp on a branch, right? Well, no. They work for the day's food. And the Lord provides the day's food. The contrast that's being made here is that they don't store up. Every day the Lord provides for them. Now, if you've read any of the scriptures, you know this is not an argument against storing up, against being wise, against the day of calamity and so on. John Piper, I think, very helpfully gives us an understanding of what this passage is getting at. What we see when we look at the birds is a creature who does not act as though God is only a merciful provider for today, but won't be tomorrow. Birds don't anxiously hoard things for the day of God's demise. They go about their work as though when the sun comes up tomorrow, God will still be God. This is the argument. We don't store, store up against God to hedge our bets if God would fail, but rather we enter each day's Toil, even if today's toil does provide such that I might store, we enter each day's toil. Give us this day our daily bread. Now consider the value. Notice that God is not the bird's heavenly father. Notice that he is your heavenly father. He who has cared for you today, will still be there to care for you tomorrow. The deal is, I have 42 years of the Lord's provision behind me. What evidence in all of those 42 years do I have that in my 43rd year, he will abandon me? The psalmist says, never have I seen the righteous forsaken, never abandoned. Let's go to the third reason in verse 27. It continues. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I love this one. It's the most practical of the reasons that Jesus gives. It's a simple, pragmatic reality that anxiety does not add a single thing to our life. Not a single hour is added. It turns out that anxiety actually detracts hours from our lives. It's not only detrimental to our health, anxiety is also detrimental to our joy. 
It robs us of today's joy in the Lord's provision. All those hours worrying about tomorrow rather than giving thanks to the Lord today. I can think of how often this has happened around mealtimes in, in my home. The children begin to ask questions about our plans for the week, right? Now, these are all plans that their father and mother who love them have made for them and have made provision for. And they begin to ask questions. They begin to ask not only what is on the calendar, but they begin to ask details about the goings-on and the provision for the day and the week ahead. We keep trying to tell them that, that Sandy and I, we've thought through the week and we've made good plans for you children, but they keep asking and pressing for more information. And all the while, over the lunch, the food that Sandy has beautifully prepared for them is getting cold. And to be honest, it's beginning to become a bit bitter for everybody at the table. Why can I say that about my kids and not feel like I'm telling on them? Which one of us does not have a heavenly father who has a week ahead? He's made provision and he's made plans. We can ask him, hey, what's going on on the calendar? What's coming up? We can exercise wisdom to that end. But what business do we have fretting today rather than saying thank you for today? My guess is if you're anything like you are today, you've got it all planned out. Let me ask a corollary question. If worrying cannot add a single hour to our life, what can? Better yet, who can? Are you not of greater value to your Father in heaven, the passage says. He's not, all, he's not only thought of tomorrow, he's already made plans for you then. What if we, what if we gave thanks today? What if we said, give us this day our daily bread as though he already has, with thanksgiving in our heart? Let's continue on to the fourth argument that Jesus gives, verse 30. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? The Lord who has clothed you today knows your needs for tomorrow. We can be confident of this. We are being clothed not only for today, but for eternity. Revelation chapter 3 verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. How long has the Lord thought ahead? How far out is he? A week, a month, a year, perhaps maybe my lifetime, a generation? How long will the Lord provide? When will we reach the end of his generosity? When will he cease to provide for my life? Never will he blot out the name of the one who trusts in him. Now, in reflecting on this passage, Kent Hughes, a commentator, he's quite realistic. He admits that not everyone is clothed with the splendor of Solomon. It's true, right? Maybe just about no one else has been clothed quite like the splendor of Solomon. So how do we account for the fact that many of God's own children around the world have much less to clothe their bodies? 
But at the same time, the robes of a royal court would not be fitting for the labor of a nurse. The robes of a royal court would not quite fit an engineer or a school teacher or a farmer. The point is this, the Father in heaven perfectly provides the clothing that is fit for the role he has given to us in the world. So we not only put on our clothes, we put on our circumstance. And we walk in it as if it was the provision of the Lord for us to walk in, seeking his kingdom in our circumstance. And what we find is his provision for eternity is gloriously greater. Let's remember our calling is to carry a cross and follow him. Again, Pastor John Piper, he says this, We must not measure the perfection of God's provision by some standard below his calling. He does not call us to live in palaces, but to take up our crosses and love people no matter the cost. And when we've finished carrying our crosses on torn shoulders, if God wills, there will be kingly robes for us all. And Solomon will be in awe of this. He's given us four reasons, plenty to reflect on, plenty to carry us on into the coming days, but he moves on to a fifth. Verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The Gentiles seek after them, that is, those who do not have a heavenly Father, those who do not belong to God, they seek after these things, but the Father knows. The Gentiles seek. Why do they seek? Because they don't know. They don't know what today or tomorrow holds, but the Father knows. Food, drink, Clothing, these are really needs. The Father knows these are, this is not to become so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. It's to become so heavenly minded that the Father knows what's going on on earth. What he knows is these are not the things for which we exist. We do not exist to serve money or mammon or food or clothing or life consists of more than these. The Gentiles seek these things because they serve these things. Ultimately, they worship these things. This reason is crucial. It it draws a distinction between those who serve God and those who serve money. Those who serve God know that the things of the Lord and his kingdom are of infinitely greater value and worth, and they know that God is good. He's not stingy. Consider the things of the Beatitudes. Those who love God love the way of the king, the way of humility and faith, the way of righteousness and peace, the way of mercy and purity of heart, food, drink, Clothing, they know the Father knows all about those things. He knows, we know that he knows that we need them. But his provision is far greater than simply the things of this world that are passing away. His his provision is the blessings of his very own kingdom. The Gentiles don't care about those things. They're too busy fretting about the things of this world, but the people who belong to the Father, because he cares for us, we are free 
to pursue eternal things. Do you see how the loving provision of the Father frees us for something else, something greater, with our time and our effort, our thoughts, our spinning? He gives us a sixth reason. Look at verse 34 with me. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I just want to say, Jesus, preach, right? Nailed it. So good. Tomorrow will bring its own anxieties. Why in the world would we drag tomorrow's anxieties into today? This is such a helpful verse. It clarifies something for us that we've probably all been wrestling with throughout the whole of this passage, somewhere in our gut. We're we're just wondering, if I don't worry about food, clothing, how will I not go hungry and naked? Right? It's okay. Ask the question. When somebody finds you unemployed and homeless, what will you say? Well, I chose not to worry about it. Right? Jesus is making a point, and he does this throughout the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. As God has provided for you today, you should not fret that he will provide for you tomorrow. You're not already there, but God is. So your labor, your toil today is is freedom. We can labor and we can toil in hope. We can go and work in the field or work in the place that God has given us to make exchange then at the grocery store and bring home provision because the Lord has provided today. We believe he's good. And when we eat it, we can give thanks. We can partake with thanksgiving. We aren't already there. We don't have strength or wisdom to deal with both today's trouble and tomorrow's. The only way that you can be present tomorrow is to by, t- by taking on anxiety, by taking on worry. But what if we replaced anxiety and worry for tomorrow with thanksgiving for today? What if the answer to anxiety in my life was to say, man, I don't have time for you. I'm kind of busy right now. I have thanks to give. What if that argument made its way into my spinning? And I began to spin on the thing that many who have gone before us have counseled us to do from the word. Count your blessings. Thank you, Lord God, for your provision for today. As long as you have breath to say it, you have what you need to say it. Really, it's all summarized, I think, in verse 33 in my Bible, it's highlighted all over in purple. It's got underlines. It's got notes beside it because really it's the thrust of the passage. It's the business of the saints. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Really, in many ways, it's the seventh and most compelling reason. If we are not to worry, what are we to do? Well, seek the kingdom. And all of the Father's provision for us, the purpose of his provision, our food, our drink, our clothing, is that we would seek the way of the king, rejoice in the righteousness of the kingdom. The fact is he provides. As I was looking at this, I realized that there's maybe 
three summary statements that I could make coming out of the, the six or seven, maybe even eight reasons that Jesus has given us. He provides, he provides the right amount. He feeds the birds. He clothes the fields. He does so to just the right degree. Here's a question for you. When was the last time you saw a bird too fat to fly? He's provided for the bird just in the way that the bird needs to go. And the bird flies. And it's beautiful, isn't it? The bird doesn't store up an abundance because God provides just what is needed for today. He provides, secondly, at the right time. As that hymn says, pardon for sin and peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today. That's great, strength for today. But what about tomorrow? Bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. We have strength for today provided by the reality of the presence and provision of our Father in heaven. We therefore don't have anxiety for tomorrow. We have hope for tomorrow. What have I filled my mind with spinning on? Oh God, what are the, what are the reasons you have given me for hope? Fill my mind not only with thanksgiving for today, but with a knowledge and a confidence and a faith for hope for tomorrow. He provides the right amount, he provides the right time, and he provides in the right order. The Lord has provided for us a kingdom. He's provided salvation, entrance into that kingdom. Having provided the kingdom, he then has provided for us food and drink and clothing. There is a right order for the people of God. There's something I want us to remember before we close. Let's remember the means by which the Father has provided the kingdom for his people. You see, we have more than promise. We have more than the Father saying, hey, just take my word for it. I've got tomorrow. It's okay. He tells us all about it. He gives us what I call the mechanics of the gospel. He puts on display for us the the very conditions of our hope for tomorrow. You see, on our own, we lost the kingdom. We blew it. And we're left with anxiety trying to fill up what we lost. Our creator God generously provided a, a perfection in the Garden of Eden. He gave to Adam and Eve, our first parents, everything that they needed, and he did so in beautiful abundance. And yet they chose to reject the provision and to pursue their own way. And it was through this Rebellion and sin, the anxiety entered the world. You can see it. It's fascinating to me that as Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil to think that God was not generous, that God was stingy, that God was holding out from them and could not be trusted, it was in that place that they began to believe that God withheld some good for them. And so they reached out on their own for the forbidden fruit in the garden and sought to provide for themselves, didn't they? This is the heart of our sin. This is the heart of our anxiety. We first cease to believe that God is good and then filled with anxiety and fear, we fend for ourselves. It's for this reason that the Father sent the Son to recover a kingdom that was lost. 
the Son, Jesus Christ, at every step gave thanks to the Father, trusted the Father, walked in the will of the Father. Matthew 8 says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And yet, it was through his itinerant ministry that Jesus brought good news of the kingdom to a people who were lost in despair, having lost the good kingdom. In the end, the son was stripped of his clothing. He was parched and he was offered only gall for drink. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can this be? Does the father abandon his own son? What does this mean for us? But Jesus suffered every deprivation. Even the breath of his lungs were taken from him as he suffocated on the cross. Jesus suffered in order to take and fulfill the curse of God upon our sin and rebellion. He filled it up and he drank it all. Jesus, the only righteous one, he suffered and he was abandoned and he died a lonesome death on a cursed tree, so that sinners and rebels might be reconciled to God and be brought to a father, not as rebels, not as those to be judged, but as those who are now his redeemed children. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus' death was so that we can confess our sin, trust in his grace, and never fear again. Because all the curse, all the way of the old kingdom has been filled up in Christ. He was stripped so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. He was parched so we might be satisfied with living water. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Anxious people, what shall we do? What shall we do? Don't be anxious about your life. You've been purchased. You've been redeemed. The suffering has been filled up in the Christ. There is no more condemnation. There is no more wrath for you. You belong to the Father. How much more will he care for you? What shall we do? Seek first the kingdom. Remember the king and his righteousness. and All these things will be added to you. Heavenly Father, The precious gift has already been prayed. Heavenly Father, you are so much more. And great. And glorious. And eternal. And perfect. In you is everything. You sustain everything and made everything. Heavenly And we get to call you Father. Lord, I pray that as we work through that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that you would fill it up more and more with the teachings of the Scriptures so that when we pray, 
pithy little statements like, give us this day our daily bread, and move on. We can't, because we have to stop and say, you have, thank you. By the way, God, I'm not worried for tomorrow. At least I know I need not be. Counsel my soul to trust in you. Counsel me to seek the things that are eternal. Thank you for doing that by means of this scripture today. I pray for those who are anxious among us. And our anxiety is, is, is a riddle. It's not as simple as just not believing something. It's so complex. And yet, you go there too. You know. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for using this word to comfort our souls. We pray and trust that your comfort will be there tomorrow as well. No matter how well we walk in it today, you will comfort us again tomorrow. Give us faith to believe. And Lord, for the one who is still fretting about, worried about the things of this world and service to this money and all that it represents, Lord, I pray that you would humble each one, give the gift of faith, that they would turn in repentance be forgiven of sin, and receive reconciliation with the Father. Lord, we pray that you would do this in our midst. Thank you, Lord. We, we call it grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.